the better the talk you give, the better you feel at the end of the day. And it's not unlike being in a band. The ability to tell compelling stories about scientific discoveries has become an increasingly important skill for scientists. But maybe it takes a particular kind of storyteller, a Scotsman, to turn a chemistry lecture into a rock concert. This is Nobel Prize Conversations, and you just heard David Macmillan, the freshly minted 2021 chemistry laureate, who was recognised for the development of organocatalysis, a new tool for building new molecules in more efficient and environmentally friendly ways. He was awarded the prize together with Benjamin List of the Max Planck Institute for Coal Research. Since 2006, Macmillan has been the James S. Macdonald Distinguished University Professor at Princeton University, where he treasures his work with young scientists in the Macmillan Group. Just interacting with research groups on a daily basis, I mean, you can't really consider it a job. It's so much fun to keep you on your toes. They're hilarious. Your host is Adam Smith. Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Fundación Ramón Areces. In the conversation, conducted a few weeks before the Nobel Prize ceremony, David Macmillan reveals that he daydreams about chemical reactions, gives his take on how to rid chemistry of its PR problem, and elaborates on the power of storytelling. But first, he talks about the whirlwind experience of becoming a Nobel laureate, including getting unexpected calls from football royalty and a starship captain. So when we last talked on the day of the announcement, you had not quite believed that it was true when you first heard about it. And I guess it's had time to sink in. Yeah, a little bit. Um, it's still pretty surreal. I mean, it's, um, it's an evolving sort of bizarreness. On that day, it was just very, like, a remarkable range of emotions and feelings and lots of things sort of coming together and boiling up simultaneously. And since then, you know, a lot of it sort of settles down, but there's just so many sort of bizarre things that happen along the way and it's still happening every day. Um, so I, I, it's kind of funny. I told a friend recently, it's, it's a bit like you wake up one morning and you've been sort of transported to a sort of bizarre universe where Everyone there is kind of the same, but there's, everything's also kind of different. But it's it's very uh, exci- it's still very exciting. It's very uh, joyful. I think is a word that I use a lot and um, and fun. It's a tremendous amount of fun and and wacky. There's just tons of wacky things that happen as well. What's the craziest thing that's happened to you so far? Oh, I've had people write me people write me uh, letters explaining to me that you know that at some stage aliens will want to meet me and. And they gave me sort of hand symbols and a and a what I should what I should say to them when I meet aliens <laughs> and things. So yeah, there's all this sort of wackiness, uh, but there's great wackiness as well. For example, uh, I, I'm a you know from Scotland. I'm a huge football fan, and there's this radio show in Scotland that's been on for almost thirty years, and it's just hilarious. It's the funniest show. It's only on at the weekends, and they invited me to be on it, which was just remarkable. And so that was great. And I was just being on that show was just, that was like a dream come true. But you get things like Sir Alex Ferguson called me up and talked to me for half an hour. Just to say well done. Yeah, just to chat. I mean, it was just one of those things because, you know, he grew up in the right beside the shipyards and I grew up in the middle of the steelworks. 
So we have a sort of pretty similar background, even though we're sort of generationally apart. And so he just wanted to chat. And then we just got chatting in terms of I'm really into history. He's really into history. So we started talking about that for a while. But my favorite part was he was sort of man-managing me about what was going to happen next. <laughs> well, that's useful. You can always use your advice. <laughs> yeah, that, so that was great, you know. So so it's this surreal moment, right? You're on the phone with Sir Alex Ferguson and he's sort of telling you yeah, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. And then I'm sort of asking him questions about, you know, when he did this thing where he got uh, Scott McTominay to play for Scotland rather than England and, and how did he do that? And he was giving me all these stories and it was just, it was fantastic. I mean, it's just... So you enter into this whole other world now where you're sort of talking to people and uh, William Shatner, you know, Captain Kirk, he called me up and we he interviewed me a, about a week ago for half an hour and we got chatting. And then after the recording, we stayed on and chatted for a good bit longer again because we were talking about him doing the Blue Origin thing and he was asking me about parts of my upbringing. And so it's just, you suddenly get access to these people who seem like they're just a million miles away from you in terms of being able to talk to them. And suddenly you can just talk to them. You know, it's just remarkable. I think that is that is truly surreal. And perhaps that's the best perk of the Nobel Prize I've ever heard, getting to talk to Captain Kirk. I mean, that's pretty special. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was amazing. I mean, like, and he was just asking me lots of science questions, but then we were sort of joking around and having fun. And so then when he stayed on afterwards, we were just sort of talking about life in general, and that was great. And then talking about the Blue Origin part, and he was talking about how blown away he was, that how much attention the world gave to that. And, and I was surprised, right, because I'm thinking, well, you're Captain Kirk. You just went to space <laughs> and Blue Origin. Of course the world is going to go nuts over that. But he was just, you know, he actually said that for the first time in his life, even though he knows that people love space, uh, that was when it really brought it home to him, to the extent that the world just loves thinking about space and the universe, etc. So having these moments is just remarkable. I mean, it's really hard to explain how remarkable that is. I wonder if it happens to everybody who gets the Nobel Prize or whether, I don't know, you seem to be a particularly approachable character that people just feel like phoning up. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard for me. I mean, a couple of people have said that to me already, and it's hard to answer because I don't know what it's like for other people who won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> But I just know what it's like for me. So, you know, I think people can tell I'm just having a lot of fun with it. And everyone around me is having so much fun with it that it's it's kind of nice to sort of all be in this kind of nice atmosphere of being able to chat about things. And I also think sometimes science and scientists at times can seem intimidating to a lot of other people. And I think people can have got a reasonable understanding that I'm not someone who's that intimidating. So it's uh, it's pretty easy for people to chat to me and stuff. So that's great. I mean, that's 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 the best part, actually, is like explaining to people that, you know, science is supposed to be about being having fun. It's not supposed to be about intimidating people. That's a fantastic message. Wow. I don't think the intention of the Nobel Prize is to make an ambassador for science, but it sounds like they've made one along the way. That's nice. This must all play havoc with the day job, though. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 one of those things where, um, you know, the, the day job, you know, where, where we're at scientifically is just, we're in a great spot right now. And we've got all these new things coming out and it's really exciting. We just published a science paper last week. We've got all these new directions going on. So it feels like we're sort of firing on all cylinders in the scientific world. And so that's all great. And we're trying to keep, keep everything sort of moving in that direction. And at the same time, you know, you're, you're, you're doing interviews with people on Italian newspapers and, and things like that. And that's great too. So the way I've sort of approached it is, 
this will all settle down for sure at some point. It'll certainly get a lot less, um, uh, there'll be a lot less interest and people want to sort of chat to you. So my sort of take on it is just sort of enjoy it while you can and have fun with it while you can. And just, and the science is going great and all of this is so much fun. I just You just make the time for it and it works out great. It works out great. And the effects on those around you, you mentioned already, but that that's that must actually help a lot that people suddenly feel energised in a way that perhaps they weren't before. I don't know. Or maybe already it was so energetic and this is just extra. I think it's it's both. It does both, actually. I think on some level it's a validation of like, you know, you know we've got this department of chemistry at Princeton where um, we all came together. We were all sort of different departments and we all decided we would come into Princeton and try and grow a department here. And Princeton is an amazing institution um, and wanted to really develop its chemistry uh, program. And so we all, a bunch of us all came in from different places and we're, we're sort of building this together. And I think this has been part of the sort of validation of us all doing it. And there's all these great things that are happening here. But at the same time, it creates all this other energy. Um, and, and talking to all the people around us, it just feels like we're even... We're more determined to go even, everyone wants to push it even more, keep it driving forward, do lots of really great, great science. So the amount of feedback we've had from all the alums at Princeton, the administration at Princeton, and even people beyond that, it's just been wonderful. And, and talking to everyone, everyone wants to do more. Everyone just wants to do more. And so again, I think it's just sort of feeding and building on itself. It certainly seems you've landed in a very good place. I mean, this has been a good year for Princeton for Nobel Prizes as well. It's <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think it's five related to Princeton in, in one year. Um, our, I was talking to our provost, uh, Debbie Prentice, and she's, I think she's run off her feet dealing with all the, <laughs> all the press and everything <laughs> associated with it. But it's great. I mean, there's so many great universities around the world, and Princeton's certainly one of them. But I would say this has been a particularly banner year for, for us and you know, but it's it's also something I think we're all proud of. You know, it, Princeton really cares about, uh, it, you know, its whole charter is in the good or for the benefit of humanity. That's what it really cares about. And it really works hard on that. And at the same time, it cares about excellence. It cares about doing things really well. And I think, again, this is a great validation for the university that, you know, they've got all these really wonderful people across the campus who are doing these really exciting and different things. And they get this kind of recognition is really is just fantastic, really just fantastic. It does make one wonder whether other other institutions can keep up with this kind of, um, you know, the, the energy and wealth and talent of places like Princeton. I mean, where, where does it leave everywhere else? What do you think of that? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that worries me, to be honest. I mean, one thing, it's, it's certainly happening, as I can see, without getting into all the sort of, I don't think it's political. I think it's actually just financial you have these private universities in America, and Princeton's one of them, and rightfully, they're doing what they should do, which is they're building their endowment and making sure that they have sustainability for their own university going forward. And you're right, their wealth has just grown at an extraordinary pace. And that's great because you, the amount of resources that go back into education, go back into science, go back into research, and, and again, to help humanity is a very good thing. The, the tricky thing, the thing that worries me, is looking around the universities who don't have that framework, who don't operate in that way. And I think that's a really uh, precarious situation of potentially creating hierarchies of educational institutions. Um, there's a lot of people who are working hard. At least I know our president, uh, President Eisgruber, has spent a great amount of time in, down in Washington 
working hard on with the government to make sure that schools who don't have these endowments are basically being represented and should be getting increased funding and resources, etc., to enable everyone to sort of stay in the same sort of league table, so to speak. And I think that is extraordinarily important for across the board. We have to make sure that the that those resources are matched throughout all institutions. Otherwise, you end up with this, you know, you, you basically end up in football terms with having your Man Cities and your, your Liverpools and your Man Uniteds. But in, meanwhile, you have these other teams at the, the bottom of the second division and you don't want that. You want it to be as much of a, a level playing field as you possibly can. Yes, it's a very complicated problem. I mean, we saw an extreme case, actually, just sort of as, as an aside, a couple of weeks ago when we did a, uh, a discussion with students in science from 24 different countries across Latin America and the Caribbean. And then you had people who were attempting to do good science in Nicaragua or Venezuela. And one of the questions that keeps coming up, of course, is should I even think of staying where I am or do I just have to leave and, and, and come to somewhere where you can do things better? Yeah, it's an interesting... I mean, it's one of those... This sounds like I'm, I'm just using this as a springboard to make a sort of propaganda point. I, <laughs> I promise I'm not. But, I mean, one of the things... And I was, you know, doing the, the Nobel lecture and, and thinking a lot about what we've did in this organocatalysis world. And it was something that was really pointed out to me a, a few few years ago. And it wasn't really something we thought about when we started doing this. But it really is true. Is this area that we sort of developed is extraordinarily inexpensive. Um, and so one of the things I sort of have become very much, I really love this, actually, I'm very proud of it, although we certainly didn't set out to do it. Uh, because it's so inexpensive, it's basically being used to teach people across the whole world, regardless of the resources or funding that's available, because it's so inexpensive. So not only um, are they educating people and getting people into understanding catalysis, regardless of their background, it's also one of the, my favorite components of it is you think, well, in the next big idea, in organocatalysis, it's not going to be based upon whether you're at Harvard or Princeton or, or Oxford or Cambridge. It's going to be based on the best idea because people can implement it because it's so inexpensive to actually do this type of research, which is something, given my sort of values, I, I care a lot about and I think is really great. David Macmillan was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry as one of the inventors of asymmetric organocatalysis, a refined method of triggering chemical reactions and creating new molecules. By using small molecules mimicking enzymes, fewer chemical reactions are needed in order to create a specific compound, making chemistry greener in the process. But Macmillan's life in chemical research was not a given. Growing up among steelworkers in Motherwell, his dreams as a young person were of a distinctly different nature. Once I got to high school, I was, you know, like many people in sort of Western Scotland at the time, there was tons of us who uh, saved up all our money that we could, we could gain or gather through like paper rounds and things. And we bought like guitars and things to be in bands. I mean, I remember there were so many people trying to be in bands and I think that was our vision of how we would sort of go off and, and jump into the, the sort of limelight and do things which would be extraordinary was to be in bands. So I remember as a sort of teenager being in lots of sort of bands, which was great, but it was never the idea of going off to do this, uh, going into the sciences and sort of thinking about research. That was not, that wasn't really something that was high on the priority <laughs> list. <laughs> Does the band idea still appeal? Do you still play? Uh, I still play. Um, I mean, it was, I love being in, I mean, I think it's a kind of weird thing, I think. For me, at least, 
you know, I love I love giving talks, and I love giving talks in big audiences. And I love the better the talk you give, the better the, you feel at the end of the day. And it's a lot of it is about the science you're presenting, but some of it is also just about the execution of the talk. You want to do it well, right? You want to feel like you connected with this audience and really brought them along for the ride. And it's not unlike being in a band, um, being up on stage and getting people excited about something you're doing. It's a very similar kind of performance, actually, in, in funny ways. And I, I, I was always telling my group who, or anyone who listened to me, it's also the way we put our talks together sometimes is a bit like comedians where comedians work on bits along the way and refine them in front of smaller crowds. And then when they get to a big crowd, they put it all together into the best bits working together. And scientists do the same thing. They absolutely do the same thing as they communicate their science. They figure out the right ways to communicate things to get that response out of the audience. And so for me, a lot of that sort of skill sets that you picked up being in bands and playing in front of all these people back in the day is actually being useful as you sort of stand up and talk about science. It's, they're actually much more connected than you might realize. Absolutely. I guess as a musician or as a scientist, you're a storyteller. You've got to hold your audience. Exactly. I, this is the thing I tell my group all the time. You know, I, I really sort of pride ourselves on the people who come through my group become really good at giving talks and you just used exactly the right word. It's storytelling. You have to you have to take that audience with you. If you don't take the audience with you and if you don't land on a crescendo at the end, people <laughs> people will sort of walk out going, Well what was that? What was that? I didn't even didn't even follow it. But if you can take them with you and end on a crescendo, people will walk away feeling good. Right? They'll feel good. It's like going to the movies. You sort of leave at the end feeling good. And that is when you're really enabling science to get to to the whole audience, that's a great feeling, I think. Really, really important. That is so interesting. It's such a difficult thing to learn, I think, as a young scientist, how to do this. And I guess most scientists don't actually get there to the point that you seem to be at. Did you struggle? Did you have a time when you were a chemist scared of giving talks and it not, not being easy? Or was it always natural? I mean, I've, I've always been reasonably okay. I mean, it's the Scottish background, you know, like telling, telling jokes or I've been able to get to a punchline and do it right and build it up properly and make it funny at the end. That part is uh, learned from being growing up in Scotland, I think. And it's the same in England as well. There's people who are just uh, areas where you have to learn to be funny. If you're going to do well in the playground or in the pub, you have to learn to be a wee bit funny. And so that part in and of itself is sort of learned when I was first starting out, though, I mean, I had such massive sort of stage fright getting up and talking in front of people. It was, it was difficult, but you learn tricks along the way to sort of allow yourself to calm down and become more level. And then once you get to that sort of much more level, then you can sort of enjoy it. And then you can get into this sort of storytelling, like you said, and you, you learn that you have to be able to communicate that out. But one of the things I, I do see a lot nowadays, at least in our world, in the chemistry world, the storytelling is becoming fantastic. So many of these scientists, uh, younger people coming through, they're watching all of these people in my generation and sort of seeing, well, they're, they're pretty good at this, but we're pretty sure we can be better. And so you see these people who are really, really good now. So not only is the science wonderful, but the communication is wonderful too. So it's, it's really a moment where I think it's thoroughly enjoyable to sort of go to almost any symposium because you see all these great talks now. Whereas when I was growing up, some of the talks were duller than dishwater. <laughs> really, really were. Even though the science could be wonderful. Well, that's very good news because I guess chemistry as a science hasn't 
always had the best reputation. I mean, it's been seen as kind of smelly and dirty and perhaps that it's also even bad. Some people, you know, if you ask people, how many chemicals do you want in your spring water? They say none, right. which isn't, isn't a very sensible answer, <laughs> but it's... <laughs> no, you, so you just hit the nail on the head. I've given many talks on this for many years, actually, about chemistry has a PR problem. And it really does, right? Because you think of biology and you think of life and medicine and you, you think of physics and you think about the universe and you think about black holes and then you think of chemistry and you think of smokestacks and, and toxins and, you know, like nasty oil, you know, like things. And so we've got this kind of bizarre PR issue because the word chemistry is related to chemicals and chemicals people have a natural sort of intuitive for some reason aversion to I think there's ways in which the field is beginning to sort of get away from what really is just a, a, a reputation or a, a way of a word or a response to a word. For me, uh, for example, catalysis is a fantastic alternative because so much of our field is built upon catalysis. And catalysis is a really sort of progressive sounding, really exciting going in, in different directions and it's it's a good connotation associated with it. And I think what you, you're now seeing in chemistry is people are beginning to sort of gravitate to terms which make up the field without using the, the umbrella term for the whole field. And I think that's almost necessary to have, you know, the, the ordinary man in the street to sort of believe that what we're doing is actually going to be valuable. It's, it's also really interesting for me, like if you travel the world, um, most places have that response to the word chemistry. One country it doesn't, which I always find really intuitively really interesting, is Germany. Germany has this really great impression of chemistry because chemistry has been really valuable to Germany over uh, centuries, actually. And so they actually, when you talk to people there, the ordinary person on the street has a good impression Whereas most other places they don't, which I always find that whole sociology behind that just fascinating. Yeah, isn't, isn't it interesting? The reputation of different things in different places, yeah. But it's nice that you stuck with chemistry for, in Princeton, because of course there was a move a bit to actually rename departments away from chemistry and they became molecular sciences and that sort of thing. Just Yeah, I mean, I think on some level you, you have to be honest. <laughs> you have to say, <laughs> we are doing chemistry. I mean, in chemistry, it's, it's almost like a re-education. I mean, chemistry is inordinately important and it covers so much of what goes on in the world. And it is a shame that it has that kind of bad PR problem. But, you know, chemists always use this terminology with a central science because we believe that we are the center of everything and everything sort of comes out of it. Whether you want to believe that or not, is, it's up to yourself. But, but it really is everywhere. And we're, as we're moving forward, I mean, all these problems that people are talking about from health to the climate, so on and so forth, it's all going to be massively based upon what chemistry can bring to the table. And so that in and of itself, we have to sort of get people uh, excited and, and interested to want to go into that in the future. You need young people to care about that, to be or passionate about that, to go towards chemistry. So you're, you're right. But you can't go, you're not going to solve it by just renaming it. But there are ways that you can get people excited about it, which I think, again, like words like catalysis and other things, that are, that, those are really going to be important terms as we think about those, those questions. So as a young person thinking about the future as a, in a band, how did it turn into chemistry? <laughs> I think for me, it was a case of getting to a stage where no one I knew had, had gone to university or uni. And then my, my brother, uh, who decided he was going to go to uni, and he was a good bit older than me, but, and, my, and everyone tried to convince him otherwise. My mom and dad were sort of convinced he was 
he was just being lazy. He was trying to do 40 extra years without having to do work, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and so with, and we didn't know anyone who'd went to uni, so we had no context in which to sort of think about this. And so he went off to, to uni and he clearly, you know, did well. But then when he came out, his first day or his first month's paycheck, he got paid more money than my dad did as a steel worker. And it was at that moment, my, my mom and dad said to me, you have to go to uni. <laughs> and so I was like, okay. But it was very sort of formulaic because my brother had went and done physics. And so I was told, you have to do physics because that's how you, there was no sort of like, well, we'll go to uni at any, any area you want. It was, no, you have to do exactly what your brother did. And so I, I, I was told I was going off to, to, so I studied really, really hard uh, to, to try and get there and eventually got there. To, I went to uni to do physics. That's what I went to do. I, I followed exactly that path. What a good boy. I mean, not, not all teenagers say, okay, mum and dad, I'll do that. You say so. Oh, you know, in, in Scotland growing up, you listen, you don't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you do what you're told. Uh, no, I think it was, it was also for me, though, you know, as a, a sort of young kid, you know, 12 years old, seeing my brother come out and getting this job and, you know, seeing like in his own flat immediately. And it was just like, that was, that blew your mind. You know, your your 22-year-old brother has his own flat. You know, it's like, wow, I want that too. So I think definitely part of it was my mom and dad, but part of it was me thinking, oh yeah, that looks good. I think I'll definitely, definitely want a bit of that. Okay, so you went to read physics and then? Went to read physics. Um, you know, and the story I told people, which is which is true. I mean, I, I got there and didn't really like physics. The other part of it was um, you, I didn't have enough money to go and be at university. So I had to travel there every morning and stay, I had to stay at home and travel. And it was about an hour and a half every day to get there and an hour and a half to get home every day. And I always remember I had to take a bus, then a train, then a subway to get to Glasgow Uni. The first lecture was really early in the morning. And you would go into this physics lecture theater and it was absolutely freezing. When it would rain, all this rain would come in through the roof and you would just be getting soaked, sitting. And this was miserable. But I know after that, though, I was also had to do chemistry as my sort of minor. And so I would go into the chemistry lecture theater and it was really nice and warm. And I was like, wow, you know. So at this point, I'm like, well, I could literally stay in bed an hour longer and it'd be a lot warmer if I just switched over to to chemistry. And it turns out there's more than how simple I'm making it sound, but it was also, we started to do organic chemistry. And that was the first time in my life I ever read or was in, involved with a part of education or, or science, where it was just reading it was amazing. I mean, it was just like, wow, this is really, really great. A lot of organic chemists will say this. It sounds a bit, you know, pretentious, but, it, but it's true, is that organic chemistry sort of found me as much as I found it. Because you're just reading it and you're suddenly going, like, this is fantastic. I, I can totally get all of these concepts at a time when other people would be saying, this is really hard and I really don't understand this. And you're sort of looking at them going, how can you know it? This is really, everything else is really complicated. This is really straightforward. And so for me, it was almost like, I love this subject. And at the same time, it was this beautifully warm lecture theater. So in my second year, I announced I was moving to chemistry. That was it. Organic chemistry can be described as the study of the structure, properties, composition, reactions and preparation of carbon-containing compounds. It can also be described as quite challenging for the pupils and students who are approaching it for the first time. From getting to grips with skeletal formulas and naming rules, to adopting the three-dimensional thinking required to put together and take apart molecules, 
Organic chemistry requires you to look at the world in new ways. But it's also very useful to medicine, biology and engineering. And to David Macmillan, it felt like going to the cinema. If you think back to when you were 12, 15, 16 year old, you watch great movies. You, all, you remember all the, the best scenes. They're, they're, they're stuck in your head. You, you, you don't forget them. And so it's kind of the same thing for me and I think for most organic chemists is you've got these movies playing in your head. And so whenever you see those molecules and someone says, how would you make this? You, your brain starts playing out these movies of, well, I cut it here, it'll happen there, or I could cut it there, it come together here. And it just all starts firing in your head. And it's like playing movie scenes back, back over and you know them all by heart, all these movies. So it really is just this visual thing. And it's so different from a lot of abstract sciences. I mean, I think that's why I was so bad at physics, is physics is so abstract and math is obviously even more so. And so I had a really hard time with these abstract uh, ideas, whereas organic chemistry is like really visual, it's really uh, substantial, and you can sort of see it all sort of playing out. And so for me, I think that's why it sort of came to me, because it was just like, how can you not see this? This is so straightforward to see. And I think all organic chemists have that same that same thing where the movies are just playing out in their head. And, and do you find yourself daydreaming about molecules and new things you can build? Is it a pastime in that way? Yeah, I, daydream. I don't dream of, daydream about molecules. I, I daydream about chemical reactions as, as nerdy as that sounds. <laughs> I just realised how terrible that sounds. I daydream about chemical reactions. No, I do. I mean, I, I sit and one of my favourite things is, and I tell my group this all the time, They should, everyone should do this, is to sit and daydream about Imagine if you could take this type of molecule and get it to react, or this type of known organic molecule and get it to react with this type of organic molecule. And, and those are ones where, at the moment, as you look at those two things, it's completely impossible to do that in our universe right now. And so you sit there and you daydream about, how can I make that happen? How can I make that actually come to be? And to do that, you have to sort of invent new types of reactivity. You have to get molecules to start to react in slightly different or completely different ways and access ways of activating them that were not previously known. And that's the sort of daydreams that I have. And, you know, if you look through the last 20 odd years of what my group's done, that's what we've been doing is inventing all these new catalytic reactions that, you know, are, are allowing people to go off and do new things. I mean, the one application that people talk about mainly is, you know, drug discovery, medicine discovery. But it's got lots of other applications too. But we do it more for the, the sheer sport of thinking, wouldn't it be crazy if you could just take these well-known molecules here and these well-known molecules there and join them in a way that no one thought you could? That's a kind of, it's exciting because it's like inventing new rules to a game or something. Yeah, I don't think daydreaming about about chemical reactions sounds so bad because, uh, I mean, after all, what was it, Kekulé came up with a benzene ring by daydreaming oh, yeah, yeah. on a carriage ride or whatever. Yeah. Structure. No, and it's really, I mean, I think the part that is really important is, and, you know, I, I got this amazing piece of advice from uh, when I was about, just about to start my job as an assistant professor. And I was visiting Caltech. And there was a professor there called Eric Carrera. And he sort of gave me this piece of advice, which I think some people think is, is obvious. I, I don't. I actually thought it was kind of profound. And what he told me was, you know, you're just about to start your job at Berkeley you're going to get some of the best graduate students in the world. And he said, so as you enter your job, what you should do is assume that any problem you undertake, you're eventually going to solve it because you've got these great people who are going to be working with you. And as such, you should choose to work on a problem that's going to have the highest impact, 
even if right now you have absolutely no solution for it because you'll eventually get there. And to, to, at that stage, that was remarkable to me because we were sort of planning to do things that we thought we could do as opposed to things that we should do, right? And, and I think that was really, if I look back in my career, that one piece of advice sort of goes through everything. We've worked on certain problems in our group for 10 years unsuccessfully uh, on things that if they did work, they would be, it would be amazing. It would really be, it would allow lots of things to happen that you just can't do in our world right now. And I think that way of approaching uh, the question is really good. Like, what would you love to see would be possible, even if you have no solution to it? And then you just go about trying to make it work, trying to make it work. And th that's the daydreaming part is, so you, you start off with problems that you, look unsurmountable, but if they did work, it would be great. I mean, I think that's the way we start approaching it. It's a bold and brave approach. I mean, there is an inherent danger that you won't make it and somehow everything will fall apart and that will be that. That's absolutely true. We've had several projects. I've um, had two different projects that have lasted at least 10 years and have never, we've never got there. We've had other ones, though, that looked amazingly difficult and you get there in a week. There's a little bit of it. I shouldn't say this because it makes it sound empirical, but there's also shots on goal, right? You have to have enough of these uh, questions and problems that are sort of in this sort of mix and if you have enough of them in the mix, and, and it really is the case that you're working with these, these students who are typically between the age of 21 and 28, they're, they're incredibly brilliant and they're incredibly passionate and they've got huge amounts of energy. I mean, I always think I'm really lucky because I, I get older, but my group stays the same age. Right? <laughs> so, so it's really interesting that, that you've got these people working on these questions and they just go at it in ways that it's it's always wild to me. Like, I'll give them a suggestion of a way they could start to, and it, you, my, my idea never works. But their their part is they'll go in and they'll go at it from all these different angles until eventually they'll have a breakthrough. And I think that's the the combination of the daydream with this sort of passion that sort of gets you to where you need to get to. Sounds a joy. Joy to work with them, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. I think that's what I mean. People, I don't think, talk about this enough. But, you know, people talk about teaching is, is wonderful. And teaching is wonderful. But just interacting with research groups on a daily basis. I mean, it's really, I mean, you can't really consider it a job. It's, it's, you, you would want to do this anyway. I mean, it's so much fun. I mean, they, they keep you on your toes. They're hilarious. And uh, they sort of give you that sort of weird look like you're the, the, the old boomer sort of guy, right? You know, like, what do you, what do you know? And, um, and it's great. It's just a really fantastic atmosphere. And in fact, so December 10th, whenever uh, on the Nobel Day, uh, all my alums are sort of flying back in, which is going to be just the, the biggest party of the century for, for our group. It's just going to be fantastic. That sounds actually a very nice way to use this circumstance and not being able to get together in Stockholm. And, you know, so you've got this hiatus. I guess you'll come to Stockholm in 2022, hopefully. And but, but this, yeah, how lovely to be able to celebrate the day in that way with everyone coming in. Oh, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a two-day event. It's going to be, um, you, know, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you know, my group understands that this, this, is, a, this is an award for, for, for me, but it's our group. It's our group who won this award. And so they feel so excited and so happy about it. So everyone just wants to be there for the day that the, the ceremony happens to see each other, to sort of be around and just enjoy that sort of moment is going to be fantastic. They all want to also hold the medal. The medal's the, you know, <laughs> I don't think they want to see me. I think they want to see the medal, which is great. Um, 
But so we're going to end. But the whole thing is just this great celebration. And it's just, again, very joyous, you know, for all these people who put in all this hard work to get us where we got to. So I think, you know, getting a chance to, you're right. So this chance for all of us to be here in Princeton, Stockholm will be amazing. But this is, you know, given the circumstances, this is also going to be wonderful too. Sounds absolutely fantastic. <laughs> I'm just wondering who's going to phone you next. Maybe Stuart Murdoch to join <laughs> Bella Sebastian for a gig. <laughs> yeah, you never know. No, I just heard that. I think, I'm, I think I've just been told I've been invited down to the White House. So that's going to be my... Uh, my next, my next one. So uh, that's a, yes, yes. Well, you, I think that happens, doesn't it? Because you're an you're an American citizen, aren't you? And I think the American laureates get to meet with a president every year. Except I don't think it happened during Trump's presidency. I think that's right. I think it was suspended, and it sounds like it's being reinitiated. At least what I've been told. I should point out, and I'm very proud of this. I am a U.S. citizen, but I'm also a U.K. citizen. So <laughs> I just want to make sure. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah, that's, absolutely. Yeah, very important. Very important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, that well, that that should that would be a fun trip down. Yes. Yeah, I mean, well, um, yeah. I mean, it's one of those ones where you again, you kind of have to. There's a surrealness to it where you you can't quite imagine what that's going to be like or where I was going to go. But you have to just be open to it and sort of have fun and enjoy it and sort of see where it takes you. It'll be it'll be an interesting day. But it will be very interesting to see how things pan out because I suppose that you know in the way these things happen I suppose you will be drawn inexorably into more and more sort of policy related discussions and all the rest of it so right watch watch this space yeah no absolutely and, and it's something that I do care a lot about but at the same time I think as a scientist you have to care a lot about where the science takes you but you have to be very wary of where the politics takes you and uh, so as, you know, and this is especially, you know, being Scottish, which is huge amounts of politics in Scotland right now. So you have to be wary of staying away from politics, but really care about where the science is going. Because I think the truth in science is the part which is the great sort of compass on which you want to follow. As long as you follow the science, we'll be in a great place. That's a good point to end on. Yes, I guess as a Scottish laureate, gosh, you'll, you'll be drawn into the Scottish independence thing, but you're not going to say a thing. No comment. <laughs> 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 very wise, very wise. David, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Adam. You just heard Nobel Prize Conversations. If you'd like to learn more about David Macmillan, you can go to nobelprize.org, where you'll find a wealth of information about the prizes and the people behind the discoveries. Nobel Prize Conversations is a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of Filt and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for this episode was Karin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, Magnus Julier, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. If you're looking for another podcast featuring a passionate raconteur, Check out our earlier conversation with 2012 laureate Robert Lefkowitz. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. 
be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms. 